to begin, when we hear the word revolution as Americans, we don't necessarily think of anything bad. There can be a good and a righteous revolution. Someone help me explain what that means. How can you have a righteous revolution? If you're revolting against the tyrant. Yeah, if you're revolting against the devil or any of his ministers or any of his minions. We, I mean, in really one way you could put it is that everyone revolts. The question is, what are you revolting against? That's another way you can put it. Um, but I'm in particular speaking about the sin of revolting against God. And of course, revolution against God is a, a considerable problem. And I think that it is something that we probably are prone to do more often than we think. And, uh, and I think this, this episode of Absalom's rebellion or revolution against King David is going to teach us a lot about what it looks like how to avoid it. Make sense? All right, so what is a revolution? First off, a revolution is an autonomous attempt. Autonomous refers to something that's done by the self. It's self-appointed, self-serving. You know, I decide in my own will, according to my own law. Autonomous attempt at the usurpation of God's established order. The autonomous attempt at the usurpation or the overthrow of God's established order order, and or his established institutions. And what are the three primary ordained institutions? The family, the church, and the state, all of which we are in. We're all in a family, we're all in a church, we're all in the state, and we have covenantal obligations, and we can be um, guilty of revolution against God by revolting against his established order or his established institutions and the order that he puts inside of an institution, meaning the hierarchy of every institution. So just to review, what's the hierarchy of the family? Father, right? Mother, children, right? And what's the hierarchy in the church? There's two offices, elders and deacons. And the, the term elder is, is sometimes uh, used as pastor. Sometimes we say pastor. It's the same office in the church, but when you say pastor, it emphasizes particular roles or particular lane that that particular elder might have. Uh, what's another name for an elder in the Bible? Anyone? Shepherd. I'm sorry? Shepherd. Yeah, a shepherd, a leader, an overseer, a bishop, right? Maybe we'll start using that one around here, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, actually, the terms are uh, episkopos and presbyteros, and we don't speak in Greek, but there's a lot of words that can go for it, but there's basically two offices. There's the overseers or the leaders, the elders, and there's a plurality, and then there's deacons who, who um, have service uh, roles and leadership in particular <coughs> service areas, and then there's the congregation. That's right. And what is the hierarchy in the state? Well, we have representative leaders. We have representative leaders, and we have an entire sermon series or entire podcast on, on the state. But, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not liking this headset here, Kevin. It's weird. It's kind of different. It's not the same that I always use, is it? No. Well, if this, I might mean, have to stop doing this in a second. Do you have that other one? That one that we use on Wednesdays? Well, we have to use the corner. All right. Well, don't worry about it. I'll make do. I'll try to make do my weird ears. All right. So um, the, the revolutionary spirit 
is the one thing I want us to look at a little bit this morning. Um, the Bible speaks of the revolutionary spirit. And, uh, and, and when it does, it's talking about a demon. There, there really are demons that infest churches and, and, and families. And one of those particular demons is the revolutionary spirit. Scholars and pastors in this particular uh, episode, they will, they will refer to the Absalom spirit in the same way that we refer to the Jezebel spirit. You all know the Jezebel spirit from the book of Revelation or the Ahab spirit or the Nicolaitan spirit. There's different spirits that are mentioned in scriptures. And, uh, and the, the revolutionary spirit, the demon, the revolutionary spirit, or however it works, um, definitely comes into churches and comes into towns and I would argue is uh, footloose and fancy free in the United States yeah. and, um, and has been at work throughout the history of, of the church. Can anyone, anyone name the first revolution that ever took place? Cain and Abel. Yeah, right before them though, a few oh, years before Cain and Abel, yeah. Satan is the ultimate Revolutionary. He's the ultimate revolutionary. He is the usurper. And he um, whispered into Eve's ear um, some, uh, some negative campaign ads against God. And she, um, being simple and naive, fell for it and decided to join up in covenant with Satan and then Adam to overthrow God's established order. In the garden. That was the first revolution. I mean, even before that revolution, though, it was Satan, right? And his revolution in the heavenly realms. Then, of course, after uh, Adam and Eve, you have Cain, obviously revolting against uh, the family order there with the murder of Abel. But then I think one that is very often not mentioned is when Noah was drunk in his tent. Are you all familiar with that particular passage? Um, the Bible never says anything negative about Noah in that particular point, except that he drank too much. And, um, and, and most commentators really just rip him a, a new one right there. They just go hard on, on Noah. And I've always said not to be too hard on Noah because there was no anesthetics, right? <laughs> there was no morphine, at least not that I'm aware of. There, there, there was just eight people on the planet. And uh, who knows what Noah was going through? He may have just had a dental operation. And so, but for whatever, whatever reason, he's had too much strong drink. And his son, Ham, um, commits some sin. And the Bible doesn't explicitly say what it is. But if you read the context carefully and you study it thoroughly, you can see that one of the things Ham is doing is trying to revolt against the family institution and the established order of the day. Noah was the head of the family, and at that particular time, he was the head of the church as well. And Ham was using that sin, if it is a sin, of drunkenness right there. We don't know the purpose of it, but um, using that to leverage power and gain control and uh, to demean Noah in the sight of the rest of the family, which is why Canaan was also cursed, because apparently in some way Canaan went along with this what I perceive to be a revolution. Um, can you think of any other revolutions in Scripture? <coughs> Job's friends. Yeah, Job. Which Job was a king. Many people aren't aware of that, but Job was a powerful, rich, and wise king, and his friends were his political advisors. And Job, Job, they were his cabinet essentially. And when Job fell on hard times, they began to accuse him 
of being condemned by God. And, and if you study it carefully, you can see that what they were up to was a political coup. They were trying to overthrow God's man um, using, using um, his sins, or not his sins, but his sufferings against him. So we, anyway, we see, we see revolution throughout the scriptures, and, um, and, and, and it is never, and here's the most important lesson, it's never effective. It never actually works. You can't successfully overthrow God's established order, right? Whether it be the devil or Ham or a child in your own family, they're not going to successfully overthrow God. It always ends up in the revolter being hanged on their own gallows. It always ends up in them being snagged in their own trap. And, and the worst thing about it is that the revolter usually takes other people with them, um, especially if they're influential. Um, the book of Proverbs speaks about the, the revolutionary as a scorner, refers to the revolutionary as a scorner. And who does the scorner always take with him in the book of Proverbs? The simple, that's right, the simple, well, and the fool. But very oftentimes the sheeple are, um, they go along with it and they get brought down with it as well. In the case of Adam and Eve, apparently Adam was the simple, it appears. And in the case of uh, Ham and Noah, it was Canaan and probably many other peoples. In the case of Miriam and Moses, you know the story where Moses is accused and they try to overthrow him. You know, why do you get to be in charge, Moses? You know, God speaks to us too and, and uh, she's get, she gets cursed with leprosy and a bunch of other people get in trouble too. The sons of Korah, what happens to them when they revolt against Moses? A whole bunch of people get brought in on this revolution and the earth opens up and God swallows them. It's a, it is a major sin, and it's just not spoken of very often. And I think it's just in us, and I think it's just ubiquitous. It's just like the air we breathe. And, um, and you remember the other Wednesday night, we were, we were talking about sins, and I was like, well, what do we need to work on, though? What do we need to work on? We, we could think of a lot of sins of other people, but, but no one had any idea <laughs> of our own sins. And that doesn't help us out much. We want to know what actually we're having trouble with and make sure that we're not guilty of it. And, um, and so this is the goal of the series is basically to identify the sin of revolution. I want everybody to be able to spot it when they are doing it or when they, <laughs> or when they see other people doing it, be able to identify it, not to condemn, but to, to help or to, to uh, cut it short, right? And also I want, because some people are not elect, <coughs> And they do not actually believe in Jesus, and they are fake and phonies, and, and revolutions reveal that. What does Paul say? He says, divisions must come in order that those who are genuine might be revealed. Well, those divisions are always revolutions. There is some revolutionary spirit taking place in those divisions, and those divisions, and he's talking about in churches, oftentimes reveal phonies. They reveal who's genuine and not genuine. That's why over a long period of time, you get to find out who are the real Christians because the real Christians persevere and the fake Christians eventually fall away and apostatize. And, uh, and, and revolutions reveal that. They, they, make that. they make that known. And so I want us to be able to spot it, not do it, and not get swept away in it so that um, God can, by his grace, help us to persevere. 
and, uh, and so that we can submit to God's established order in his three institutions. Amen? And I think, I think this is going to be really helpful. It's also very interesting because it's not something that is talked about much. And so, but let's begin real quick. Um, the revolution that Absalom engages in, and, and by the way, um, this is a continuation of the series on the life of David, but this particular episode, it was, I just didn't want to preach on it on Sunday morning because it's just be really weird to move into a brand new building and be like, all right, how to split a church. Um, <laughs> you know, the sin of revolution. I was like, ah, what a downer. And so uh, I'm, not, I'm not scared to do it. It's just that even Isaiah doesn't always preach woe and lamentation. Right. Even Isaiah has like every every other chapter is really good news. Right. So, you know, when do you when do you do which? And right now is a good news time. Right. Uh, simple. Good news. I didn't want to go into the sin of Absalom on Sunday morning. So I'm doing it in Sunday school because I think it's very interesting and uh, helpful. So anyway, when did the revolution, Absalom's revolution really begin? Well, I would say that it began with David's polygamy. That's what I would say. It begins with David and his polygamy, which was a revolutionary act against the law of God. He was not obeying God's laws. He was acquiring for himself a bunch of wives. And most of them weren't, it wasn't necessarily like we might think, but a lot of them were just political alliances. He was just doing what people did back then. He's being practical and pragmatic rather than obeying God's law. But that's how it starts. David has a bunch of children and he can't father them. He has too many children to disciple, too many to discipline. And the Bible is clear. He doesn't do a good job of it. He's terrible at it. The Bible literally says he did not spank Adonijah. Um, and he turns out to be a rotten um, kid. And he doesn't do justice in a lot of different ways. And, and one of the main reasons is he got all these half, half stepkids. And, and, and they all kind of see each other as rivals. They're, they're raised in different families. And and they don't love each other. It's just a terrible situation. And so it's David's polygamy that starts it all. But then after that, you'll remember in our series on David that Joab was the Joab murdered Abner. Right when Abner needed mercy and peace, Joab, you remember the story, um, shanks him um, secretly. And what does David do? Does he do justice? No. David instead goes about political maneuvering and won't do the right thing and bring Joab to justice. Then, in chapter 14, or 13 or 14, um, one of David's sons um, rapes one of David's sisters, the rape of Tamar. He doesn't do justice in that situation either. It, it should have been, uh, there should have been justice rendered by David, who is the civil magistrate, by the way. But he's not, he's not holding his family accountable to God's law. He's putting, he's putting his, his political alliances and his family ahead of God's law. And so because he doesn't do justice in the rape of Tamar, Absalom, his son, executes, well, murders Amnon, the, uh, the one who did the rape. And so now Absalom is a murderer taking vengeance in his own hand, which is not biblical. That's a revolutionary sin, the sin of vengeance. But then David doesn't do justice then either. He doesn't um, punish Absalom. He doesn't have Absalom executed Instead, Absalom goes and, and seeks quarter in his father-in-law's town, and his father-in-law preserves him as a fugitive. So they're all going about injustice. Um, and then, oh, and by the way, there was the, 
murder of Uriah, one of the greatest injustices in all the Bible. And then in chapter 14, as we come to chapter 14, he lets Absalom come back, right? He should have executed Absalom, but he doesn't. He allows him asylum, so he gets to come back in as a fugitive, but he puts him under like house arrest. He doesn't let him come back to the palace and get full rights, but he gives him the Hunter Biden treatment, you know? Um, I was just trying to wake y'all up, all right? <laughs> a little slap on the wrist, you know? Um, okay, you get to come back. You're not going to be executed, but you can't come to the palace. You have to stay in your mansion, you know, down the street. And so he gets, he doesn't, you know, get full privileges, but he gets a little slap on the wrist. David looks like, you know, he's not guilty of favoritism and nepotism and an unjust king. It's a political maneuver, more than likely. So by the time we get to 2 Samuel 15, which is where I'm hoping we'll get to today, um, you got David is unjust, right? A murderer, not executing murderers. You got Joab, who's a murderer and not being uh, dealt with properly. And you have Absalom, who is a murderer and not being dealt with. The three most powerful men in the whole country, the president, vice president, and the, what's the, the, um, speaker of the house, house, they're all murderers, right? One's a Christian, um, David, but they're all murderers running the country. And so this, I think, is one of, one of the most important lessons when we study this whole, uh, this whole account. If the leaders don't do justice, right? Uh, then they, the leaders are setting the stage for an eventual civil war, an eventual massive division. If David would have done justly and, um, and dealt with Joab and dealt with Absalom, perhaps the, the civil war in the whole nation could have been diverted because we're going to see in a few chapters civil war breaks out. Right? A revolution, a very successful revolution breaks out and is not dealt with for quite some time. So all of this could have been avoided if David would have spanked his kids, right? And, and, and followed God's marriage laws. But he didn't discipline his children when they were young. He didn't instruct them in God's law. Clearly, most of them are degenerates. Um, he, he doesn't follow God's law very carefully, especially in the area of family. And he sets the stage for revolution in the family and in the church. There's really no greater crack that you can put in your community's foundation than for the leaders to perpetuate injustice. Yes. They have to do the right thing. You have to do the right thing even, even when it's hard. All right. Um, and so fathers, you need to make sure that you are administering discipline with your children. If you allow your children to uh, disregard God's law, um, they are not only revolting against you and your family, they're revolting against God. And, and it will only get worse. It will only get worse. Amen? Amen. Amen. And mothers, you know, you need to uh, do everything that you can if dad's not there to, to do discipline as well in the name of the dad, right? If dad's, if you get home, that's your job, Right? It's your job. If the mom and dad are with the kids, the dad should do the spanking. He is the agent that's given the rod. But if he's not there, then the mom needs to do it. And, uh, and we've talked about this so much, I'm not going to go into it. But um, if, you wanted, if you want your kid to grow up to be a criminal, right, and a church-splitting, miserable person, um, and constantly causing chaos and strife in your family, then don't discipline them. 
But if but you want to lay a solid foundation for your family, which will bless your church and your community, then do the right thing and uh, don't be like David. Amen? Amen? Now, as far on the national scene, because our nation, this sounds a lot like our nation, doesn't it? Yes. Injustice of the top, not, not um, doing justice with criminals. Very oftentimes, people who do righteous are punished, while the people who do wicked, are, they, are, they are blessed. And, and when a nation is characterized by injustice in its leadership at the very top, buckle up, right? Buckle up, because we're headed for division. We're headed for revolution. Um, and we're headed for a civil war. I, would, I almost am certain if nothing changes, um, civil war is on its way in the next hundred or so years, if not sooner than that. All right. Um, now, but the leaders weren't the only ones that were corrupt. You can open up your Bibles. We're just now going to get into the text. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. I wanted to give you a little background there. 2 Samuel 14, 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Man. Why does the text tell us that? Absalom is loved. You mean Absalom the murderer? Yeah. Right? Yes, Absalom the murderer is loved by the people because he's got great hair and uh, he really likes to show it off, as you're going to see. He literally does. And, uh, and, and this, this shows us that not only are the leaders unjust, but the people are foolish. The people are simple. The people are not evaluating life according to God's standards. Does this sound like our country in any way? Yes. Yes. This is, we can call this for the old folks in here, this is the Bill Clinton effect. Right? Or or if you you don't know Gavin Newsom, some of you do. Y'all know Newsolini? Over uh, Over in California? Gavin Newsom, he is a wicked uh, deviant. And yet, people love him. People love him. And uh, if, he might even be the next presidential uh, nominee for the Democratic Party. People love him. And honestly, and I don't want to upset any of you, Trump is not any different. He, he is not a righteous, godly person. You all know this. I'm not saying he wouldn't be better than the necromance deviant that's there now. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that uh, Trump... He's a celebrity. He's got poise. He's got witty one-liners. Yeah. That's not how we're supposed to evaluate our leaders. Right? We want people who know God's law and are wise and will do justice. Uh, not personalities and celebrities. But we're just like them. So buckle up. You know, buckle up. Our, what is happening here in the story of Absalom will be would continue. It already is happening, but it will be. It will continue to be what happens in our own in our own nation. You say, but we have elections. <laughs> they had elections too, mm-hmm. right? They had elections too. All right. Um, Isaiah chapter thirty-two, verse five, I think really captures what it's like in a nation that is under judgment. The fool will no more be called noble. Now, this is a messianic promise of when the kingdom reigns um, and when Jesus is made uh, front and center of a nation or a church or a town. The fool will no longer be called noble. But when you don't worship Jesus and his law is not supreme, the fool is called noble. 
And the scoundrel is said to be honorable. That's right. We, this is the Epstein Island effect. Yes. That when your nation is under judgment, the people um, celebrate, for all the wrong reasons, the most wicked, foolish scoundrels of all. And that is most certainly what is happening in our nation. And it's what's happening here in pre-Civil War Israel. All right, so application, dads, pastors, elders, civil leaders, we have to make sure that we teach our people the law of God and the Proverbs of Scripture so that you can be wise. You don't want your children to grow up and to be suckers for celebrities and to be dupes for, um, for foolish, evil, wicked men just because they... Um, can speak clearly or just because they have funny jokes and one-liners or because they have poise and confidence. You want to train your children to evaluate things righteously according to God's law so that they are not suckers to revolutionaries. Amen? And, uh, of course, that's the, goes in, the same in the church, and that's why hopefully this series will help us to make sure that we can um, spot revolutions and make sure that we never are taken captive in our imaginations or in our heart by charm and wit and personality, but rather we want to prop up people who are honorable, noble, wise, and godly. Amen? All right. If you want to keep ignorant people from, uh, from being swept away in revolutionary um, spirits, then you have to make sure you're teaching the Word of God. All right. So let's go into uh, verse 28. <clears throat> and I'll read this for us real quick. This is Absalom... He's under house arrest, sort of. He can't go to the palace. And um, he is now going to manipulate and maneuver and weasel his way back into political power and back into the court of the king. And so it starts in verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So he's back in town. He's in D.C., but he's not on anybody's cabinet. He's not, he doesn't have an official position right now. You know, he got the golden parachute. But that's not enough for him. He wants to run things. You know, he has a revolutionary spirit, and he won't be happy unless he's in charge. He's got quite a bit of ambition in that way. So then Absalom sent for Joab, and that's David's very powerful military leader, to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. So Joab's ghosting him. He's, he's like, come on, man. You know, you, you talk to the king. Get me in there. He's trying to make an, uh, an alliance with Joab. But Joab doesn't want to deal with this. Joab is, is staying out of it. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Joab is ignoring him and ghosting him. So Absalom will not be deterred. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. That'll get this dude to come back, right? Sets his field on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Well, try that next time someone goes to you. You know, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll text you back then, right? That's going to be my new thing. Hey, I'm about to light your field on fire. <laughs> right. Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king. To ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be still there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. 
Like, give me an audience with the king. Now, Absalom, of course, knows what's not going to happen. He knows David's not going to put him to, the, to death. He's, he is playing off of David's favoritism. He knows how David works, and he knows I can push Joab here. I'm going to keep burning down your stuff until you get me in there. Hey, if I'm guilty, he can just execute me. Uh, he's manipulating. You see all the scholars and, and commentators say that he is weaseling his way back into political power by putting the screws to Joab and, uh, and, and calling, him on, calling him out. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face. He's so humble. He's such a humble guy, right? He's, he's just there to serve David, right? He's there. He's David's biggest fan. He's David's biggest fan. Which is a good lesson, by the way, when people flatter you mm-hmm. and they are your biggest fan. Be careful. That's right. Your biggest fans flattering you are sometimes going to turn out to be your worst enemies. Because people with revolutionary spirits in their heart, with Absalom spirits in their heart, they schmooze. They schmooze. Don't get schmoozed. Beware of the flattering tongue. Amen? All right. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. There they are. They are restored. So Absalom is back in power. And now the revolution begins. He's got a little, little, uh, he's got a a budget, you know. He's got the title. He's got the office. He's a prince. He's a prince. So I'm going to read starting in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And um, we don't have a ton of time left because we started so late. So we'll work on that. Um, But as I read, I want you to notice the red flags. And then afterward, I'm going to ask you, What are the red flags? flags? So that I'll know what to say. Okay. All right. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. By the way, chariots and horses and the men to run, they're like... No, it's like a PR firm. It's his his, uh, propaganda. It's his media. He's got heralds. He's got heralds, you know, marketers. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, Hey, from what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. David, well, deal with these concerns, you know. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in this land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. (laughs) And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. You know, thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Mm -mm -mm. Old Kingfisher. For any of y'all know, he's a, a man of the people. You know, a man, uh, a man who can be trusted. A man who stands up for the little guy. You know, unlike David. You know, unlike David. So, what are the red flags? There's a lot of them, right? Six verses. All of them. That's right, all of them. Isn't it interesting how the Bible warns us of sin and, and, and shows us through portraits, through narrative? I find that it's fascinating. It's much more interesting than a bullet list. But what, anybody got some? Obviously. 
He set himself up as a judge. Yeah, okay. He, he is going to the gate. Mm-hmm. Right. Where do you, if you want the juicy tea, if you want to pick up everybody's offenses, if you want to, to solve everyone's problems, if you, you know, want to share everyone's concerns, mm-hmm. where do you go? You, well, you, you go on Facebook, I suppose, today, right. or, uh, <laughs> um, or the water cooler or whatever, but then you went to the gate. That's where the complaint department was. And so everyone, you went to the gate. That's where disputes were dealt with. So everyone who would go to the gate with a complaint or a criticism or a concern or an injustice that's been done, Absalom would be there (coughs) pretending to really care about them, right? He's flattering them. Kings don't, princes don't take peasants by the hand and kiss them. But you see what he's doing. He's a politician. He's schmoozing. He's flattering. I'm a man of the people. And, and you know what? If, well, if, I were, if I were king around this place, you know what? We, you wouldn't have these concerns. You know, if we did things my way around here, uh, this stuff wouldn't be taken care of. You know, old David, he's probably okay with it. I mean, if, he, if old David shared your concerns, he'd deal with it. But you know what? He's up, up there, up in his palace. He's probably up there with his rich friends right now, you know. And here, you and me, we're just down here dealing with these problems. Right? You see what's happening. You see what's happening. He does it a long period of time. Right? He's a, a, and, and eventually the result is that he steals the hearts of the people. He steals the hearts of the people from David. So um, let me just list a few things so you can see it. Um, first of all, this doesn't look like a revolution. The revolutions never start looking like a revolution. They begin inside hearts, right? Revolutions begin inside hearts. And they are, they are sowed, um, the small seeds of bitterness and resentment and strife are sowed by people like Absalom. And, and people like Absalom put those little things in, into people's hearts and, and, and wait for those things to fester, until they eventually explode. But by that time, they have a, they have a faction large enough to perhaps sway and to take, take control against uh, David in this particular example. But it doesn't look like a revolution. What does it, actually, what does it look like to a simple person who's never willing to, to, to be discerning? To a simple person who always um, is gullible and easily manipulated, what would this look like? Oh, he's compassionate. That's right. I mean, and imagine if someone were to, to say to you, you know, actually, he's, this is a sneaky way of him dividing the kingdom and attacking David, and you shouldn't fall for it, mm-hmm. right? They would be like, well, I think we should think the best of others, right? Mm-hmm. right? You see what happens when an Absalom is sowing the seeds of revolution in the heart, it looks like Something Jesus would do. And, it is, it, and usually people like this are very clever and very crafty and very manipulative. And they get themselves in a situation like this where they're on the right side of virtue. Right? And you, if you say anything to them, you look like the bad guy. So now you can't say anything. And yet you see it happening and you see the simple people falling for it. And, and if you say something... You're the bad guy. That's why you have to, you want to have all your family and all your church 
and everyone you possibly can to not be duffel putts, um, but to be wise and shrewd. We are to be, Jesus says, as wise as serpents. We are not called as Christians to be suckers, right? And um, so it's in the heart. I notice another thing. He's serving, right? He's serving. He's loving. And he's got time for everyone. Unlike David, right? Right? Unlike David, Absalom is friendly. He's hospitable. He's humble. Notice he hires 50 men to sing his praises. He doesn't speak. He doesn't say anything good about himself. He's so humble. He just has other people doing it, right? He's, the, he's used his money and his resources to, to build his notoriety and his name as much as he possibly can. And he cavorts around. It doesn't say it in this text, but he goes around with his long hair everywhere. And, and that's, in our mind, that might be thought of as like he's some sort of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, like trying to be a celebrity or trying to be handsome. But in that particular culture, that is what Nazarites looked like. And long hair was shameful for men, um, just as a shaved head would have been shameful for a woman. So he is taking on a, a long um, haired appearance like a, a Nazarite. He, he floats up above the ground. He's holy, right? He loves everyone. It's all, but it's all a show. The Bible even tells us that every year he'd cut his hair because it was heavy on his head. He didn't care. It, it, the Bible even tells us his motives for doing it were completely um, disingenuous. And he bows and kisses people that come to him. He's humble. He's loving. He understands. And he's very ambitious at this. You remember what it says? It says he'd rise up every morning. He's a hard worker. You're never going to catch someone like this being lazy, right? He's a hard worker. He's driven to, to supremacy, to be sovereign. He, and you, don't, you almost ask, like, why do you want this burden of leadership? Why would you want to be in David's shoes? You're already a prince. You have all the money you could possibly imagine. Your life is good. Why do you want to be David? But someone filled with a revolutionary spirit will never be happy unless they are so the supreme in every area of their life, right? In every area of their life. They can't respect or submit to God's established institutions and orders. They must do everything they can to rise to become the chair, you know, they have to be the chair everywhere they go. And if they don't get to be the chair, they're going to find some dupes somewhere to let them be the chair. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that revolutionary spirit is so dangerous um, for a nation. And especially na- it's dangerous for a church. It's dangerous for a church. And I've seen it so many times in our church. Well, not so many times, but at least I could count them on one hand, probably. People that have this mindset. And, and unfortunately, as a young pastor, I was not as wise as I should have been, you know, I was new to all of this. And, and some people came in and, and they began this sort of stuff and you don't always catch it soon enough. Now I, I'm, I'm a little bit more, and we have a lot more wise men in our church and women, but uh, we're a little bit smarter with this and you can kind of see them coming a little bit now. Um, but there's people like this are sneaky. They're sneaky. They look loving. You know, they say they love you. They, there's lots of hugs. They, they love the people. You know, unlike the leadership, right? There's always that little implied um, condemnation. That is the spirit of Absalom at work. Um, and if a community, we're almost done here, if a community waits and waits and puts up with this behavior, it only gets worse. The faction 
grows as more and more simple people are brought into the concerns and the offense and the criticisms. You see what I mean? All right. So what time do we have? We got to be done here. But here's two lessons for us. First of all, when you want to find a good leader, or if you want to be a good leader, you want to find reluctant leaders. Right? We have to choose elders occasionally. We don't have to this year. But when you're looking for elders, we have great elders, but when you're looking for elders, you don't want people who are, you know, they want to be there so bad, they must be there. And they're striving and manipulating and maneuvering to push themselves into that. You want reluctant leaders. I mean, who here is a, a, a lot of you are leaders of your family, but does anyone here lead? Ben, you lead a, a business, right? Does anyone else, you know, a lot of you lead? Well, you're starting a business. Trust me, when you, if you have a bunch of employees one day, your employees are going to occasionally be tempted to think, you know what, if I was in charge of this place, we wouldn't be dealing with this stuff. Yeah. And they tell it to other people. That's the revolutionary spirit. And you're going to think, you want this? You want the keys to this? Let me, please take me off this cross, right? You want the kind of leader that realizes that leadership is service. It's dying to self. You want reluctant leaders. When you find a good, solid, wise, godly man or woman who is reluctant to take on a call, Make them, right? That's the person you, you pray for and you really, really want them to do it. And I, it reminds me of John Calvin who did not want to, to lead in um, his church in Geneva and, and he didn't want to lead in the civil affairs either. And another uh, reformer pronounced a curse on him if he wouldn't do it. <laughs> and, and it's Calvin, right? That, and he was so terrified of what this curse might lead to that he went ahead and answered the call. And also, if you're not a leader, um, be a good follower as well. And one of the things you can really do that can completely shortcut the Absalom spirit, the revolutionary spirit, is um, don't go around looking for other people's hurts and other people's offenses. You understand what I mean? You have enough to forgive people over. You don't need to go and find all the sins that other people have done to other people. Right? Don't, if you find yourself in the gate, okay? And, and you find yourself always in the middle of the concerns, the offenses. You need to ask yourself, why am I always wrapped up in other people's offenses? It's very important not to take other people's offenses and bring them unto yourself. You might be an Absalom, right? You might be an Absalom, or you might be a dupe to that person. So don't. You encourage them to deal with that in the right way. You don't take it and absorb it. Amen? And also be very, very careful if you're the person that everyone is always going to for cons- with their concerns. Especially if those concerns have to do with the hierarchy of an institution. Right? If one of your kids is always going to the mom with concerns about dad, moms, don't fall for that stuff. Don't allow that to t- take place in your family. That is revolutionary. If, if people are always going to you with, with their hurts and their grievances and their offenses, um, you need to make sure that you're not in the gate appointing yourself as judge. Amen? Yeah. 
Because what does Paul say in Romans chapter 14? You're not the judge. Jesus is the judge. Amen? All right, we're done. Y'all have a good evening. Uh, good morning. <laughs>